0: Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Oh, that sounds good.
1: Are we are we going to roll here today? Or are we going to get m- mired in technical difficulties? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, we have the two main channels on now, so that's that's the key. This is Alan. I don't know if you've met Alan, Doctor Jones.
1: Hi, Oops. Alan. How how are you?
0: Hello. Nice to meet you. I've got good the to see you. Next to me now.
1: Yes. Good. Good morning or good afternoon. It's afternoon where you are.
0: Thank you both for being so accommodating and flexible for the. You're welcome. How's the uh, weather in England today?
2: Right now, right here, here, right now, it's sunny. Oh, that's good. Yes. Yes, it's it's been um, it's something of a, an Indian summer. It has been something of what they always used to call an Indian summer. In other words, a summer after the after the normal summer, uh, 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 dragging on, dragging on summer. So the weather has been warm for the last uh, for the whole of, nearly the whole of of September, and now beginning of October, it's still warmer than usual. I think so
0: we've been lucky fantastic well i have 15 pages to finish in uh, dr jones epilogue but uh, i've enjoyed the 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 book and i've started yours as well uh bishop Williamson. i've started yours as well i just received that one this week yes um i i guess we'll we'll start on time say again written
2: by dr wade
0: yes Yes, okay. I, he's, a, he's a fantastic writer. I don't know anything about his writing, but just, I am in the first half of the first chapter, he's very engaging.
2: Yes, He's um, he's got a good mind. He's very humble. He's got a good mind. He knows the faith, and he knows the modern world. And very unusually for people, he uh, seeks to integrate the two. And he succeeds, <laughs> I would say he succeeds in taking a proper view of the modern world in light of the faith precisely.
1: Is that David White?
2: Dr. David White, yes.
1: You know, he and I were at Temple University together.
2: Really? I I didn't know that.
1: Both at the the same time, and we never met. We were there the whole time, and (laughs) we never met. And I didn't meet him until about 30 years later in Kansas City.
2: Yes, really. At that Jeez. time,
1: he had had a, a huge impact on the on the Navy, the U.S. Navy, because he taught uh, at Annapolis, which is right. the Naval Academy. So he introduced them to the liberal arts. Yes, in, uh, uh, from Annapolis. So, uh, so there were, so there were two English professors standing up there, and the young people were so impressed that one of them raised his hand and said, "I want to major in English." Where can I do that and I said the first thing you need is a time machine because you can't do you can't do what we did thirty years ago anymore correct the Surely English profession right. has been taken over yep <laughs> uh, every, virtually was... everything has been taken over yes you're right absolutely
0: it's a right, new let's... it's a new world it's deliberately I, a new I w-
2: world
0: I was uh reading his biography as I was starting your book and i and I thought I could see the overlap between dr jones and his pedigree and i'm like oh, i wonder how this is all connected so there, there is no connection other than some shared alma mater i gather no
1: well, that's a connection because we yes. were both we were both studying english literature at the same time you know avant, okay. avant le deluge avant <laughs> okay well avant le yes.
0: deluge what I was going to propose to get, we, you know, there's so much suspense yesterday, just to get us started as quickly as we can, if if it's okay with you two, I would read your book jackets profiles of each of you as an introduction. We have to assume our audience isn't, isn't going to be familiar with who you are. So I would read um, Bishop Williamson's profile in the back of his book, and then I'll read Dr. Jones' profile in the back of his book, and then I'll hand it's it okay over to me. Dr. Jones. I'll hand it over to Dr. Jones for him to start the conversation as, as he wishes, if that, if that works. Sure. Okay. Well, we had a few glitches yesterday and today everything is working swimmingly. So it must all be meant to be. Uh, We're right on the minute of, of starting on time. I'll just ask all viewers and joiners to please keep your uh, mics on mute during the conversation. And we can, if you're, if your mics are working, when a Q&A comes, we can, we can do audio q and um, I will start off by reading the biography of each of our esteemed guests uh, so that the people that aren't familiar with their work will quickly become familiar. And then we'll let Dr. Jones start the conversation from his perspective. Uh, this is the back of Doc of Bishop Williamson's biography which i just received um and there's some quotations one is uranium from bishop bernard filet bishop filet is a man with whom one can dialogue this is not the case for the elements who are a little strange such as bishop williamson or others who have been radicalized Pope francis the williamson case was an unforeseen mishap consulting the internet would have made it possible to perceive the problem early on in the future In the Holy See, we will have to pay greater attention to that source of news. Pope Benedict XVI. Notorious, a thorn in the side of those seeking reproachment. Spiegel, online. Uh, Now this is his biography. A beast and a dinosaur to some. An extremist to the mainstream church and media. And a hero to loving and loyal admirers. Bishop Richard Williamson is likely the most loved and hated Catholic cleric since the American radio priest of the 1930s. Either way, it's impossible to avoid him. In, his, in this charming and in its own right provocative account, his friend and confidant of nearly 30 years explains why. That's the introduction from David Allen White and his book, The Voice of the Trumpet. I will move now to Dr. Jones. I've got 15 pages to finish in his epilogue. And this is the topic of our conversation today. And I'll just read his jacket cover for his profile. Dr. E. Michael Jones is an author, lecturer, historian, and journalist. Jones' books, Libido Dominante, The Slaughter of Cities, Barren Metal, and The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, and its impact on world history have sparked debate, led to social change, and brought thousands of people to the Catholic faith. In 1981, after he was unceremoniously fired from St. Mary's College for being a pro-life advocate, Dr. Jones went on to found Fidelity, a magazine which was dedicated to exploring the causes of the crisis of faith in the Catholic Church. In 1995, Fidelity magazine rebranded as Culture Wars. As the editor of Culture Wars magazine, Jones has been on the cutting edge of demystifying and analyzing the programs of social engineering and sexual liberation and taking the wisdom of Catholic tradition and applying it to today's societal ills. Dr. Jones is the father of five and grandfather of 22. He lives with his wife of 54 years in South Bend, Indiana. And I just wanna say, as I'm, as I'm finishing this book, it's, um, it's an incredible decoder ring of the root causes of the culture wars we're all experiencing now. But of course the doctor and the bishop will, will be able to elucidate much more on that here shortly. I found the last five chapters incredible tie-in of bringing it all together into our present times. So with no further ado, I will hand it over to Dr. Jones for him to set us off on on however he would like to introduce the topic.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, As someone once said, life is short and art is long. Uh, So we began yesterday with a a kind of summary. Bishop Williamson was kind enough to write his uh, latest column about about my book. And in that, he quoted me as saying there is uh, currently a civil war in the uh, deep state between the WASPs and the Jews. And that David Ignatius, columnist for The Washington Post, has basically written a column uh, declaring war uh, by saying that the Biden will have to uh, withdraw I said at that time, to put this in a historical perspective, that this isn't the first time that the WASP elite had to step into American foreign policy and orchestrate a course correction. This happened in 1947, 46-47, which is known in Germany as Das Hungerjahr, when when uh, the Jewish secretary of state, Henry Morgenthau, tried to starve the German people to death. Okay, the bishop mentioned uh, sterilization. Uh, this was not part of the Morgenthau plan, but it was part of the Jewish plan uh, to destroy Germany. Louis Nizer mentioned it in his book, Jewish Lawyer, and also Theodore Kaufman mentioned it in his book, uh, Germany Must Perish. This uh, is the situation we're facing right now. Uh, but since uh, Bishop Williamson is here, he's one of the main characters in this book. Uh, There's a whole chapter dedicated to him uh, on the Williamson affair, which is basically when uh, Bishop Williamson was lured into a trap in Bavaria. Uh, As I remember him telling me that uh, basically a Swedish TV team had come to Bavaria to interview him, gave him the impression that the interview was over and then uh, sort of, uh, oh, by the way, uh, how many people died in the Holocaust? And at that point, Bishop Williamson, thinking that it were, the cameras were off, said 300,000. At which point, he broke the law and initiated a, what I would call the great, the the crisis, the defining crisis of Ratzinger's papacy, uh, which was basically every headline in Europe saying uh, Pope allows Holocaust denier into the church. That was an oblique reference to the fact that Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI had lifted the excommunications of the four bishops who were consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre in 1988. As I said, Ars longa vita brevis. Ach Gott, die Kunst ist lang und kurz ist unser Leben. And so I'd like to get right to the issue, which I think is the crucial issue in both the Ratzinger Papacy, and the Holocaust narrative, which is the career of Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, I think it had, uh, uh, as a uh, recovering conservative, I remember uh, the 1980s when uh, Ignatius Press brought out the Ratzinger Report, uh, uh, giving us the impression that this was a a conservative uh, force for uh, upholding the uh, moral order. And I think that was true to a certain extent, but it didn't take into account the whole Ratzinger beginning with the Ratzinger who was uh, at the Vatican council, the Ratzinger who was responsible for throwing out the Ottaviani documents, the preliminary documents were, which were the raison d'etre of the council and then inaugurating a new uh, era in the church uh, by uh, saying things like the church had nothing to fear from the modern world. Zavall, uh Pedro Zaval goes into this in detail. Uh, I uh, think that there is a a misunderstanding of Joseph Ratzinger. I think that uh, the real understanding has to be rooted in history. And that is the fact that this man was subjected as a teenager and in his 20s to the most ruthless form of social engineering ever known in the history of mankind. It was imposed on the German people. And I think that the entire church is suffering to this day from that uh, form of social engineering. Uh, My thesis is basically that Ratzinger imposed the Holocaust narrative on the entire church at the Vatican II. He inaugurated a a serious Catholic-Jewish dialogue, which has had a catastrophic effect on the ability of the church to proclaim the gospel. But more importantly, it has had this, this alliance, this dialogue with the Jews, has crippled the Catholic church's ability to defend the moral law. And that is in many ways what was going on here. That's my... A uh, short summary of uh, the, the what I see is the post World War II situation, uh, but I'd like to talk to, um, ask Bishop Williamson about his dealings with, with uh, Cardinal Ratzinger and then uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth as a way of further elucidating this crucial period of church history.
2: Well. the whole drama of super liberalism taking over the church at Vatican II or simply liberalism taking over the church at Vatican II goes a long way back uh, in church history. It's been it is surely today a state of apostasy of the church. Uh, Many involved are more sinned against than sinning. It's been an apostasy led by the leaders of the church not by the Second rank or the third rank, not by the cardinals or the bishops. It's been led by the popes. It's still being led by the popes. The the management, so to speak, has gone. The 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 the, the top leadership in the Catholic Church is way off track. Not only Benedict the Sixteenth, who tried as as best he could, according to his lights, to put a bit of a break on all of it after he'd seen what where it was going, what it was doing, but um, the problem goes a long ways back. Uh, let's say the beginning of the decline of the Middle Ages, and then that's about 700 years. Um, therefore, it's not a superficial problem. Uh, it's something that has got hold of the whole world. Um, it the, the best way to see it, I think, is to compare it to the flood at the time of Noah. Uh, scripture says mankind had corrupted their ways, and the Lord God needed or chose to wash practically everybody out and start again with eight decent, no doubt decent souls, but still suffering from the region of I So I, I don't think that Benedict XVI is all that much of an exception. Uh, He's a, a modernist like the other six popes that we've had recently. The, well, six popes from Paul VI to Pope Bergoglio. Um I I think that uh, they're all modernists, they all share the basic principles of modernism, which are nailed in Pope Paisetan's encyclical Pershendi of 1907. Uh, and it's it's that that corruption of, of heart and mind in modern man is um, fruit, uh, well one major stage of that, uh, along those 700 years, was the so-called enlightenment of the late 18th century. But that was prepared by the early 18th century, prepared by the 17th century, and so on and so on and so on. It's been a long and steady decline. Um, So uh, I'm not sure that I would agree with um, Professor Jones in placing so much emphasis, if I may say, on Pope Ratzinger. He is typical of the clash between the old world and the new world. That is to say, he is a main agent of the new world, the new world order, as opposed to the Christian world order. The Christian world order reigned for many centuries in in Europe, and and through Europe in particular. It it has reigned to some extent over most of mankind to a great or well lesser extent. Um, that old world order has been crumbling for a long time. Um, Pope Fratzinger absorbed the poison. I think he had, um, he's a Hegelian. In other words, his philosophy is all mixed up. Um, therefore, his head is mixed up. I think his heart was, was there was something decent in his heart from his very normal and habitual and classical <laughs> Catholic childhood in South Germany, and a, and a thoroughly normal and decent family background. Um, his brother was also a priest, uh, died before, George died before Joseph, and uh, had reached an old age like Joseph. Uh, <clears throat> I see what's going on today as a as a universal apostasy, like it was in the time of Noah, and what all men are, are more or less infected. So Joseph Ratzinger, Professor okay. Jones.
1: Okay. So, all right, well, let's go back to Noah then. We'll start with Noah. No, wait. let's not go back to Noah. I think that's a little bit too far. I think, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, Maybe, maybe, Mo- no, we're not going back to Moses either. I think the crucial turning point came with World War II and the New World Order that got imposed on everyone. And at this point, Ratzinger uh, faced a choice. He had to decide whether he's going to go along with it or whether he's not going to go along with it. I'll I'll give you, I I, I think we should confine ourselves to, to specifics here. Uh, I just received a book uh, by Robertson Jennis. Uh, about the whole issue of supersessionism, which has been a neuralgic issue ever since Vatican II. Uh, in 19, we, I, we played a role at this at Culture Wars magazine. We published an article, you know, I believe is around 2009, in which uh took the American bishops to task for their catechism. There was a statement in this catechism which said that the Mosaic Covenant is eternally valid. Uh pointed out the fact that this is a heretical statement. This is kind of shocking that the American bishops would uh, put, put this in their catechism. The bishops tried to pretend that the article didn't appear, but then they had a vote. And with a vote of something like 240 to 16, the American bishops voted to take that statement out of the catechism. They admitted that Sungenis was right here, which I think was, Uh, And uh, so it vindicated the power of the bishops to correct the course. They admitted they were wrong and they restated the traditional teaching, which is that uh, the church uh, has superseded uh, the covenant with, with Israel. What happened is that the bureaucrats then took over and did not do the bishops bidding. They did not change the catechism and so on and so forth. I, if you press these people, about why it was necessary to change the church's teaching. So to say that the Mosaic Covenant is eternally valid and there are basically now two ways to get to heaven. You can worship and adore Christ as the savior, or you can kill him. And both ways will get you to heaven. To, in, in what was the justification for this preposterous break in Catholic tradition? And if you push him, they all would say the Holocaust. They had to take into account Jewish suffering. I'm saying this has been a crucial issue. It is many ways the crucial issue, if we want to be specific, about a very particular period of time. It all goes back to the social engineering that Ratzinger internalized after World War II. As a victim of social engineering, he took that to the Second Vatican Council. He mentioned uh, specifically two things that he was. this was going to be in reaction against. One was the syllabus of error of Pius IX, and the second one was what Bishop Williams had just mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, anti-modernist oath of uh, Pius X. This is the crucial issue. I don't see any point in globalizing here or going back to Noah or, or making a, a, a blanket statement when the issue is much more particular than that.
2: <laughs> Professor, you're um, m- much more a master of the detail of the 700 years than I am, uh, <laughs> and I agree that I would agree that uh, in modern times um, the uh, the high the high ups in the church are gravely responsible for, like of Ratzinger, he's not the only one. He's, 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 I think one of the more decent ones amongst the felons who, who um, changed the church. But then I would, I would switch. <laughs> I'd switch the argument, Professor. Uh, I would say that the crucial turn point, turning point, in these, let's say, for a moment, seven hundred years, was Luther. Uh, it's Luther who smashed Catholic Europe, or, or let's say, European Catholicism. Um, and the consequences of Luther are working out all the time. Uh, It's Protestantism which is responsible for modern men, mainly responsible. Uh, But uh, I'm not arguing, I'm I'm certainly not arguing with you, Professor. I honestly think that you have a mastery of the detail, and what you're talking about actually, dare I again suggest, has rather more depth than you suggest by situating it in the modern world. And that is that the fight between Christ and the Jews is a fight of 2,000 years. It's not just uh, even since World War II or just, I don't know, whatever whatever other milestone you might. There are milestones all, all along the way. St. Luther was not a Jew, actually, himself. Uh, he was influenced by Jews, but he wasn't a Jew. Um, but the real, real, real clash is between the... Uh, the Jews and the Catholics between the old between the talmudic new the talmudic version of the old testament and the new testament the old testament properly understood came from god and was of god the mosaic old testament but the what the talmud what the Jews then made of the old testament since the old testament is constantly speaking of jesus christ and since if you scratch just a little you immediately realize that then they had to Smother the Old Testament and make a false version of it, which they did with their Talmud. And the Jews of today are not Mosaic Jews, they are Talmudic Jews, in, in easily, mostly, easily, most. And that's where the problem is. And that's why, um, when you scratch, as you say, you scratch the problem of Vatican II and you bump into pretty fast, you bump into the Holocaust. Now, I, I think Professor and I would be agreed that it's largely, well, look, on the basis of evidence, as opposed to emotion, the Holocaust is largely a myth. Um, it builds a huge superstructure on a little, a little, little foundation of fact. There's no proportion between what is built upon what the real facts and those real facts themselves. No proportion. Um, it's a measure of corruption of our modern world that so little can be made into so much by the instruments of propaganda. And of course, the enemies of God take care to control, to buy up and control the instruments of propaganda and the the media. And it's the fault of the Gentiles that they've let all of these media fall into the hands of the enemies of God. The the enemies of God, who, who are not only Jews, but the number of Gentiles that have come from the Jews, just as there are Jews that accompany Catholics. But, um, so it's not a watertight division according to Jew or Gentile, but let's say that the guide and the force behind the enemies of God, what well, gives them their coherence and their drive and their intelligence is largely a number of Jews because it's in their bloodstream to fight God from the moment of the crucifixion. So that's why The Holocaust issue is, the Holocaust is simply the latest episode in this long-standing war between Christianity and Judaism, or Talmudism.
1: Well, I I agree with that. I mean, I I wrote a book called The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, uh, which was my attempt to resituate the whole uh, question of what is called anti-Semitism, Resituated back into its original matrix which is the theological matrix away from the racial matrix which is where that word came from it was invented by wilhelm marr in 1871 uh as part of that whole darwinist uh biological determinist takeover of european thought that took place at that time i said it was uh logos the G- the jews uh k- when they when they they, they were faced with a choice when the Messiah came, uh, and they chose to kill the Messiah that was sent to save them. The Messiah is the Logos incarnate. When you kill the Logos incarnate, you're in rebellion against Logos, which is the order of the universe and rationality. And once you in that position, you're a revolutionary. And Jews have been revolutionaries ever since they have been involved in every single revolutionary movement in european history beginning with uh, the crucifixion beginning with the uprising against rome the arian crisis and so on uh, bolshevism all the way up to the present and they were involved in the uh, reformation but not through luther luther did not like the jews he certainly he thought he was going to save them uh, at the beginning Uh, because of his eloquence and when that didn't happen he just decided they should all be uh, turned into slaves appropriated and so on and so forth the villain there i i i think was william of ockham if you want my humble opinion because he introduced nominalism as the main theological or or philosophical strain in europe at that time i had the privilege of eating dinner at the uh, house in munich uh, Franciscan convent where William of Ockham died of the plague didn't inspire my appetite much, but it was nice to know that the, he. This was concrete evidence of William of Ockham's influence on on German thought and and Luther in particular. The question is uh, when did when did we when did this go sideways? Uh, if you go back to eighteen ninety, the eighteen nineties, Chivo which was created by people like leo the 13th and Pius IX, as a as a bulwark against revolutionary movement published a three-part series on the jewish question it has it's an unbelievable read we have a copy you can order it from uh, culture wars the english translation uh but they they it sounds like uh, a combination of bishop williamson and e michael jones talking about the the, the jewish question which no one talks about anymore they talked about the voracious octopus of Judaism. That's a direct quote from this Chivota Cattolica, which is the official magazine of the Vatican. Uh, and that was the official position of the church uh until Vatican II. And Vatican II was accompanied. I mean, the I I, I state this in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, B'nai Brith and the American Jewish Committee had a double agent working for him. This man's name was Malachi Martin. He was working for these people. He was being paid by these people to subvert one main point, which is that the Jews killed Christ. That was the main point of their efforts. That's been it stuck that's been sticking in their craw for centuries. And they felt that they had their moment of opportunity with Vatican II, and the church did not go along with that. The bishops of Vatican II did not go along with that. To say that they did is to uh, uh, slander them. They upheld tradition. You can read the documents, they're in the, my, my article in Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, of how disappointed the Jews and their agents were because they didn't get what they wanted. But What they did get was a a statement uh, which is translated, the Flannery translation is, uh, the Church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. What does that mean? They never define the term. Does that mean we have to, every time the ADL says something, uh, we have to go along with it? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what happened. The ADL has basically taken over the Catholic Church through things like called Catholic-Jewish dialogue and we have to have The course correction now, but the course correction has to be specific. You can't just globalize about uh, Vatican II without getting into the details.
2: Yes, uh, surely that's correct. You've got to get into the nitty-gritty. You've got to provide the. You've got to work out the evidence. What is the evidence along this these seven hundred years? What is the evidence, and um, what proves it? So, without any doubt, uh, the details need to be gone into. Only uh, the the grand picture is also, the big big picture is also very necessary for people's minds to put it all together. So we need both the details and the big picture. Um, You mentioned William of Ockham. Indeed, he's an agent of the apostasy. There's no question of that. Nominalism is a horror in decent decent philosophy, a horror as far as the truth is concerned. Um, It's not so easy to explain because it's into the abstractions of philosophy. But there's no, he was an Englishman, of course. Um, Never died in Germany, but he was English. And uh, I think Occam is the village where he came from, is it not? I think. So I think he's he's called William of Occam. In any case, he's a bad guy. And The modern world tends to excuse the bad guys as as long as they're "quote unquote" sincere, but subjective sincerity is quite a different thing from objective truth. Objective truth is independent of our minds; subjective sincerity is fully dependent on our minds. So, um, I agree with 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 like. (laughs) I mean, I think. Professor Jones gives the the details, and I I tend to give a, make, make a big picture of what I'm talking about. Um, I don't think there's a contradiction. Uh, there's a lot of details on over those seven hundred or two thousand years, and you've got a book like uh, The Plot Against the Church by Maurice Binet, which uh, itemizes the interventions of the Jews to block, obstruct, paralyze, destroy the Catholic Church. Those 2,000 years are littered with attempts of the Jews to get rid of the Church. So each of those attempts is, is told in detail. Uh, they all form part of the theological enmity between those who think they belong to the Old
1: Testament, and those who know that they belong to the New Testament. Uh, I had the first word. I, I don't. I don't know when you want to go to uh, the questions from the people uh, in the audience. It, it's up to you. It's we've gone for a, a half an
0: hour now. Okay, I'll just I'll get them ready. Uh, maybe I'll ask a couple of questions first, and then um, I'll get the Q and A's ready. Okay, that's fine, Bobby. Um, two questions. Yes. There was two, just the, the term that is popular now and is weaponized ambiguity. And I was surprised, this is late last night, I'm reading the ending chapters of Dr. Jones' book, that there seemed to be a couple of conflations by the actual Pope Uh, that were deliberately ambiguous. Once he was visiting, I think it might have been Jordan, but he was visiting somewhere in the Middle East, and he vaguely referred to the covenant, not specifying Mosaic covenant or Abrahamic covenant. It seemed like a deliberate ambiguity that left open this concept of supersessionism, which seemed to be deliberate. And for a pope to do that, seems uh letting his duties down basically and so the other side of that question is this conflation between supersessionism and anti-semitism there's so there was also another well there was a rabbi i think he might have been a rabbi in rome who was deliberately uh tangling those two concepts and I think the Pope Pope Benedict didn't see the games that were being played. That's how it seemed in that case. But I, I, I guess I'd leave it open for both of you if you have comments to clarify my understanding of those two ambiguities.
1: Yeah, the the crucial moment came when the Pope John Paul II went to Mainz, uh, to a synagogue there, and he talked about the old covenant has never been revoked. Well, what do you mean by the Old Covenant? There are at least two covenants that need to be distinguished, which is the Abrahamic Covenant, which does not cover Jews. It covers everyone. And secondly, the Mosaic Covenant, which is specifically uh, for the Jews. Now, in, in his book, uh, Bob Bobson goes into detail about if you follow that through, uh, John Paul II only referred to the Mosaic Covenant in subsequent uh, uh, speeches but the ambiguity you're right it was played it became a, a a moment of opportunity for those who wanted to uh basically disrupt the teaching of the church and so this old covenant ambiguity the old the covenant the the uh the ambiguity in the term the old covenant has plagued the church ever since then all the way up as i said to the uh, catechism, the American catechism, where they substituted the old covenant uh, uh, or Mosaic covenant for the old covenant. This has been, now. if you're talking about intention, I don't know. I can't judge uh, the Pope. I think it's easier to judge the bureaucrats in the United States Church who followed a path of deliberate obfuscation. So they put in a new passage by Paul, a conflation of a couple passages by St. Paul. And the passage began, it's from Romans, there's the gift, there's the covenant, blah, blah, blah. The first, the beginning addresses Israelites. It says Israelites. That's the translation of the New American Bible, which is the official Catholic translation. Well, they changed it to the Jewish people. Well, obviously, something's going on here. There's something crooked going on here when you have this type of manipulation. And I think you can ascribe bad will, uh, if you want to talk about their intentions, to to that group of people, the people who bit deliberately slow-walked the uh, bishop's direction to change the catechism back to something uh, non-heretical.
2: Yes, the the... The enemies of God are skilful. Uh, our Lord says they're more skillful. The children of darkness are smarter than the children of light. The children of darkness are not always easy to uncover, precisely because they are children of darkness. So they work in the dark. They they make a great use of ambiguity, which enables them to, as Germans say, dance on dance at both marriages at once, uh, and to confuse people. And to it, ambiguity is a classic. A weapon of heretics because they are still pretending to be Christians while in fact they are moving in a quite different direction and have quite different beliefs um, therefore uh, the whole the, the whole modern scene reflects uh, deep down this clash between the the chosen race that was once the chosen race and chose to stop being the chosen race. um, It was God who made it the chosen race and they who made it the non-chosen race as far as they could from then onwards because Christ got involved. That's one side of it. And that clash is, is absolutely basic. Um, it's, it's, there was a French socialist who once commented I think on another French socialist saying that this other French socialist Proudhon was one of them I do believe though. so we're talking about the 1830s 1840s around there um, one of them commented that uh, to his surprise he found that beneath the questions of socialism were constantly theological questions and the second Socialists at that time said the only thing surprising about this, the, this discovery, so to speak, is that he should find it surprising. Of course, all all, all serious issues are basically theological, basically for against the one true God and his logos or order, and basically against. And that's the deep down clash that underlies everything we have around us in the modern world. That's why it's so important for people not to be scared off by the adjective anti-Semitic, which is, you know, if there's any word in, in the dictionary that electrocutes people or electrocutes their reputation, it's anti-Semitic. But uh, the word is profoundly ambiguous. So, uh, and, and they're constantly playing on the ambiguity. Uh, but uh, that is the underlying theology. It's the, it's the falsified Old Testament against the New Testament. And that underlies socialism. It underlies economics. It underlies modern politics. It, it, it any serious human problem for the last two thousand years is going to be basically theological.
0: Okay, thank you both. I'm I'm getting some questions coming in now. <clears throat> I uh, we have we could definitely put anybody on audio and video if they want to. But I think what I'll do is I'll I'll repeat the questions that are being submitted in the chat and then if there's a longer dialogue that invites itself we can have them turn their turn their mics on this is from a gentleman named patty mcgee who probably is related to me and my family tree as well Um, in the old testament the jews split into israel in the north and judah in the south jesus came from the line of judah house of david in the south so um uh, he said the, the ultimate question is you just came from the line <laughs> it's hard to uh i can't quite wait to see the oh here we go okay um so, have Israel, Jews, turned against, away from God even before they meet, murdered Jesus on the cross? Jesus came from the line of Judah, House of David in the south. So, have Israel, the Jews, turned away from God even before they murdered Jesus on the cross?
1: Yes, of course they did. They, their feet were hardly dry from walking across the Red Sea when they worshipped the golden calf. And their history is a history of apostasy. And so it became clear that only a remnant of this group of people was going to be saved, and that was true of, at the time of Christ. They, they always had problems following, following the covenant that God made uh, easy for them, a, a yoke that was easy, uh, and they couldn't follow it. And so Jesus came along and they rejected
0: him. Okay, this one's directed. Uh, go ahead, Bishop Williams, if you'd like to add.
2: No, I no, I, I agree with Professor, Martin, Professor Jones on a large number of questions.
0: <laughs> this one's directed straight to Bishop Williamson. It seems, um, this is from Sergio, it seems that the largest SSPX traditional Catholic parishes in the United States have also been infiltrated by pro-Jewish forces. Nobody dares to mention the Jewish issue, and if anyone does, they're shut down by these people. Are you aware when this happened, is it possible to regain control or are the pro-Jewish forces within the clergy as well? What would you suggest the laity do to get the traditional Catholic parishes to actually hold traditional values on this issue?
2: Well, uh, as I say, uh, one, behind behind all serious human issues today, is this clash between, let's say, the Jews and Christ. It doesn't look like that, but that is in fact what's underlined. I think Professor Jones might agree with that, especially when he writes a book like The Revolution of the Spirit of the Jews. Um, But people are, everybody is scared off, because through the fault of the Catholics, who have not had a strong enough faith, to reject the nonsense being brought, served up in ambiguity and lies by the enemies of God. Enemies of God includes not only Jews, but also a number of Gentiles. who are But they're led by the Jews. In, in the fighting against God, it's Jews who are leaders. Usually. Um, not always, but usually. Um, because they are passionate about rejecting Christ. Um, so uh the sorry i lose i keep losing the thread i'm i'm well into my eighties i don't <laughs> think as clearly as i possibly as clearly as i used to or well, i can't not, I, I lose the thread rather often than i used to um where were we uh, can you remind me uh, what was the question again
0: Uh, The question was about the Jewish infiltration in the traditional SS. Yes, that's right.
2: The Jews have infiltrated everywhere today, practically everywhere, because of the lack of Catholic faith. Because Catholics Catholics have the truth, the complete truth. And uh, if any one Catholic is talking nonsense, he's not talking nonsense as a Catholic, he's talking nonsense as a human being who happens to be a Catholic. But hasn't understood his Catholicism, otherwise he wouldn't be talking nonsense. So uh, the the Jews have infiltrated everywhere, and it's not anti Semitic to say so. It's simply a recognition of the reality. You may remember, or people ought to remember, that the Catholics need, if they feel cowed by these people, and if the, the word anti-Semitic is enough to shut them up in five seconds, then they really need to get down get, get down on their knees and pray, one. And two, they need to do some studying of a book like Maurice B. May, the Plot Against the Church, in order to realize what the truth of history is. And everywhere, you know, what our Lord says, judge by the fruits. Where... a, a, a somebody who's a Jew by race um, or acts and thinks like a Catholic, which they're perfectly capable of. They're brilliant people. And once their minds really get over the truth and their hearts get over the truth, then they can make crackerjack Catholics. Uh, Of course, such Catholics are are abominated by the Jews because they're so powerful. They have all that Jewish power, that, that, that natural brilliance and intelligence, which Jews do still have from, as a gift from God, but, um, Catholics need to know their faith and to know the history of their church and to read the solid and sound authors. For instance, in, in, in English, in recent times, it's the Irish father, Dennis Fardy, who they need to read. They need to get all of the books and to read them. Also, for instance, this big volume on the Jews by uh, Professor Michael Jones, Another, another big volume was written by Hugh Akins, um, The Synagogue Rising, which, which is exactly what's happening. The, the synagogue, meaning the assembly of Jews, is getting stronger and stronger all the time. And if, if Catholics, let's say Catholics, what they can do is pray. And, but then you get Catholic men who will say, Oh, I'm a man, and I want to be like a man, and I want to fight like a man, and I'm not content with praying. That's just for the women and the children. Gosh, how wrong these. I mean, the Catholic Church have been led by men. There have been some outstanding women, of course, who have helped the good leaders, but the leaders in their own right to that extent, but the leaders have been men. And it's not by slinging lead or swinging punches that the men who have led the Catholic Church have led it. It's above all by being men of God, and that means being a man of prayer. Catholics need to pray. And if there's one prayer that we need to pray today, I always, say, and I do believe it, it's the rosary. Because that's the prayer that Our Lady keeps asking. Wherever she appears, and she's appearing all over the world at this time, to try and save as many souls as possible before the curtain rings down at the end of the world. Um, if there's any one prayer that, that people need, Catholics need to preach the rosary. Ah, oh, that's a prayer for women and children. It's repetitive, it's boring, it's dull. And it's going through the mother of God and she's only a woman. Ah, oh, gosh, you're so wrong. What, what a woman. I mean, she's the mother of God. Goodness sakes. And, you know, if you want something from an Italian, the classic way of getting it out of it is going to his mother. You go, you attack the, you persuade his mother, and then she would get after his son in an Italian way. And he's sung. The moment she comes after him, he's sung. You know, you go through the mother. You go to Jesus through his mother is the surest way of getting his attention and his sympathy because he cannot resist his mother. So, And the rosary is... Another thing about the Rosary its the Feast of the Rosary tomorrow. Another thing about the Rosary is it's, it's almost purely Jesus and Mary. The man that we're given is a model and ideal, and he's divine. And the woman that we're given is a model, model, she's the mother of God. She's not as self-defined, but she was as close to the divinity as any human being could get. The Rosary is what men, men, Catholic men, should be praying today and not just yesterday Well, they should be praying it all tomorrow, but let Catholic men get in their heads. They should not be downtrodden by the enemies of God. They should not be allowing themselves to be downtrodden by the enemies of God. Who I repeat, not only Jews, but are primarily Jews. The Jews have gifts which make them the most dangerous enemies of God.
0: Thank you, Bishop. Yes, my, I, I mean, I won't go into the details, but my Catholic alumni from my Catholic high school, it's like they they remember the be gentle as doves, but they don't remember the be wise as serpents. They remember half of that. It seems like, if, <laughs> but anyway, um, here's from Liz to either one of you, if you have, either one of you have a response, uh, Liz M, is it not obvious now that Francis is a tool of the NWO? Professor. Uh,
1: Again, I would be more specific. I think Francis is a Jesuit. Uh, He can't. No one man can run the church by himself. And so he has delegated uh, the church to the Jesuits, the running of the church to the Jesuits with catastrophic results. Uh, The Jesuits uh, are run by a homosexual cabal I'm saying this because Father Paul Mankowski told me this. He's a brilliant man, a Jesuit who studied uh, Semitic philology at Harvard. I've known him, knew him for years, uh, told me this when I met with him in Rome, when he was teaching at the Biblicum, the Jesuit university there. It doesn't mean that every Jesuit is a homosexual, but it means that the order is controlled by homosexuals. It's corrupt, it needs to be uh, either suppressed or reformed. I think suppressed is probably the best issue. So if you want to connect that to the world order, new world order, uh, you can, because uh, George Soros gives millions of dollars to Jesuit NGOs. So there is a connection, and it uh, it again goes back to the crucial period that I tried to talk about before, which is the post-World War II period, when the american empire uh, started on its course to total spectrum dominance the main uh, uh, accomplices in the undermining of the catholic church in america from the period in the period following world war ii were the jesuits there's no question uh, i say this because i wrote a biography of john cardinal kroll based on archival material uh, the crucial battle at that time, I'm talking about the 1960s, was contraception, uh, aid to public schools. And Bill Ball, who was the lawyer, uh, said to Kroll, basically, we can't share any of our information with the Jesuits anymore because it immediately lands on the desk of Leo Pfeffer, who was the main Jewish lawyer for the American Jewish Committee. So it's been long-standing. The crucial turning point was the anti-communist crusade that's when the jesuit americanism seemed to be compatible with catholicism uh, but we're long past that point and so i think we're just going to have to suffer through uh, the jesuit hegemony over the church until uh, this pope dies
0: okay i've got a question from another mike Uh, could his excellency expand on his thoughts on the treaty of westphalia and potential Jewish involvement?
2: Um, The Pope at the time, the Treaty of Westphalia was 1648. It was, it signaled the end of the Thirty Years' War which had devastated Germany from 1618 onwards. And it was the triumph of the principle of live and let live. For 30 years we've been all fighting one another and we've been killing one another and there's no decisive result, and it doesn't look as though we're going to get a decisive result. Uh, There's no point in the war continuing. Let's stop fighting, and let's agree to live and let live. Now, that's fine if you're confined to practice. In in practice, it's common sense. If there's going to be no practical result of the war, nobody's going to win. That's what it looks like. Then, in practice, let's stop it. if, if either side really thought that they had, they had, they could still win. Probably they couldn't because in 30 years they hadn't. Neither side would prevail. So let's stop fighting. That, in practical terms, is common sense. But in theoretical terms, the danger is that you establish as a principle that it's best not to fight over things. That it's best to let live and let live, and never hold a strong opinion. Never hold hold. Oh, liberty for everybody to think what they like. What risk, we're all going to respect one another's opinions. We're not going to go on and on and on and fighting. And it, what happened in European history, very broadly, was that the, this the the practice of living, let, let live, which is common sense, turned into the principle, which is the principle of religious liberty, which is the denial that there is the implicit denial that there is one truth, or that the one truth is found. And that's wrong. There is only one truth, and it is findable for people who want to find it. Knock uh, it leave it be opened on to you, and so on. Um, so, in um, Westphalia, the Pope at the time uh, condemned the peace of Westphalia precisely because of the danger that re- that was made real afterwards of the practice of the principle, the common sense, I'm sorry, the common sense of practice turning into a theoretical theoretical principle is liberalism itself. Um, we worship not truth but liberty. God is a God of liberty. Uh, of, of liberty takes precedence of truth. It's thanks to liberty that we have truth. Thanks to the American way that the Catholic churches thrive, for instance. Um, no, that's wrong. That's not. It, it's thanks to truth that, that truth survived, that, that, that the Catholicism thrived. Um, therefore, good. to worship liberty is open-ended to good or bad. To worship truth is, is to shut out the bad and, and include only the good. Therefore, the peace of the Hamill was a, a dangerous step in European history which opened the door of the practice of living, let live, turning into a theory, as though living, and live and let live, was the best theory of life. It's a good practice, but it isn't good theory. Because it
0: suggests that there isn't the truth. That's a very important distillation, Bishop. Thank you. Um, This is from Emmett. Um, Which prelate said something about we must sufficiently take into account the sufferings of the Jews and change our theology if need be? Do I have that quote right? Hard to believe that a rational person said that. That's
2: because uh, I let the professor speak very fast, but that is because people's minds have been taken over by the Gentile and Jews, enemies of God.
1: Uh, if you're asking me who said that specifically, I don't know who said that, but it epitomizes what I just said about the 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 uh, the entry of uh, dual covenant theology into the Catholic Church, which has crippled their ability to defend the moral order and to evangelize. So th- that it epitomizes what I
0: just said. All right. I think this is uh, to either one of you, if either one of you has an answer. Is it is dis- this is from Sergio, is disrespect of the Pope a sin?
1: All right, let me... <laughs> first of all, the problem here is the the word disrespect. Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. And what do you mean by the Pope? So if the Pope uh, gets on an airplane and starts because probably because the lack of oxygen in his brain starts talking about who's going to win the world series, uh, that's not magisterial teaching. Okay. And you don't have to follow that. Uh, But on the other hand, let's get serious here. Um, The Canadian bishops in 1968 rejected uh, Humanae Vitae. They rejected the authority of the Pope when it came to teaching about uh, contraception. I think that was a serious sin on their part. And I think as with all serious sin, it had serious consequences and it explains the absolute parlous state of Canada at this moment. Okay. In 1968, Pierre Trudeau came to power. This was a kind of velvet revolution. His son, well, it may be his son. It may be Castro's son. We don't know for sure. But uh, (laughs) Justin Trudeau is now in power. He's one of the most ruthless totalitarian dictators in the world right now. And I am saying that it's the result of that sin called the Winnipeg Statement, which rejected uh papal tea not papal teaching, the Pope proclaiming magisterial teaching. Yep.
2: Yep.
0: Okay. Um, this is from Liz M. What can we do about it? Because bishops are doing nothing, just regurgitating Francis diktats.
1: Okay, let me restate what I said here about the American bishops. Okay, uh, they did stand up when you put pushed them to the wall when we at culture wars pushed them to the wall they stood up and reiterated church teaching that there are not two covenants and there's only one way to heaven and it's through baptism so give them credit for that uh, upholding the magisterium but then give them uh, an f for following through as administrators they should have held their bureaucrats feet to the fire that document the catechism of 2006 should have been pulped immediately and they should have had a clear statement of the church's teaching following it up that didn't happen
0: um this is from patty how do you reconcile one true faith being catholic and tied to the vatican with reforms of vatican ii how does one continue to receive the Blessed Sacrament and worship God? Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, How, worship God correctly. How does one continue to receive the Blessed Sacrament and worship God correctly within or outside the current Vatican edicts as a Catholic?
2: By paying no attention to a good deal of what comes out of Rome today. Uh, okay. You have to know you have to know the past where uh, the doctrine is clear, it remained clear broadly until Vatican II, although it was being undermined, watered down, and poisoned all the same, progressively. Uh, but Vatican II was when the poison really burst out, broke out. Um, but you need to know tradition. You need to know Catholic tradition. You need to know the traditional faith. And you won't get it out of big books, Catholic books, supposedly Catholic books, following Vatican II. You've got to look for and find old-fashioned books which have been reprinted, classics from the previous centuries, even in modern times, up to Vatican II, let's say, again, broadly speaking. Uh, You need to know tradition. And then, by God's goodness, you find, if you look, uh, seeking you will find, uh, you will find somewhere in the vicinity um, in most countries of the world, or many, at least I'd say a large majority, you will find somewhere that, that tradition being upheld. It's upheld especially in France and the United States, uh, but it's upheld in Germany, it's, it's, it's upheld in many countries. You can find in old, the old mass especially, which is the it's by mass the mass that most people live their religion, they live their faith by Sunday Mass. And that the true mass is, is the mass that council of the trend called the Tridentine Mass. You look around you and you find a Tridentine Mass. You start attending the Tridentine Mass, you talk and, and exchange with, with people attending that Mass, and you can sustain your faith. It's not easy. Today's world poisoned by propaganda and overwhelming media and Poison politicians and so on. Nobody says it's easy to today, but it is possible. When it becomes impossible, then the Lord God, as like in the case of Lot, the Lord God uh, has a way of getting people People that really don't want to go with the rot, he has a way of getting them out of it. Maybe going back to live in the country, maybe changing country, uh, you know, but where there's a will, there's a way. The thing is, you've got to have a clear mind about what's going on, what's happened to the church, and then a clear mind to discern between what is of the old church and the true church, and what is of the modern nonsense, the modern ambiguous and poison nonsense. And if you're looking for how to discern, God will give you to find the way to discern. And as for what we can can do about it, um, Our Lady constantly asks for the prayer of the rosary, and moreover, she asks, what can we do about these bishops? She says, pray for the Pope, for bishops and priests. That's where the problem is. The problem is not with the poor Jews. The problem is with the false Catholics. It's only misled false Catholics who make possible the triumph of the Jews. Tertullian T- T- said way back in about the two, around the year 200, he was quite a, almost a, church, a father of the church. But the best, the good books that he wrote before he went went to back. One might say, one might say that's teasing the city of Atlantis. But he he went hard and exaggerated and um, off track at the, at the end of his days. But before that, he was right on track. He's he said that the power of the Jews and the faith of the Catholics are like the two pans of a pair of scales. As the faith goes up, the Jewish power goes down. As the Catholic faith goes down, the Jewish power goes up. And that's true. Today, the Catholic faith is strongly weakened, poisoned, overwhelmed, you name it. Whereas uh, the Jewish power, and therefore, therefore the Jewish power is unprecedented. They run, they run everything in the world like they've never so succeeded in running it before. And their power increases day by day okay. because yeah. the Catholic faith diminishes day by day.
0: Thank you, Bishop.
1: Uh, I, I I see we're closing in on the end here. I would just like to say yes. that the la- the last time I met Bishop Williamson in person, it was in Wimbledon. I went over to meet with him shortly after the uh, excommunications had been lifted by uh, Pope Benedict. I went and I said, this is a a moment of opportunity uh, to end the schism. Uh, Bishop Williamson uh, met with me, came down and said, I have a letter upstairs that says I accept Vatican II in light of tradition. I said at that point, well, then go up and sign it, and then we'll talk about tennis, because they were playing tennis at Wimbledon at that point. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, we, we had a long conversation after that. And after that, I gave a speech to Bishop Williamson. And I presume it was the leadership of the uh, SSPX in England at that time. And I concluded my speech with the parable of Christ in the boat. Christ is asleep in the boat. The boat is The church. The boat is tossed about on storm by storms because the devil has powers over this world, the powers of this world. And at moments like this, when the church is being tossed about in storms, it always seems that Jesus Christ is asleep and that you reach a point of tension where you can't stand it anymore. And so the apostles went to Jesus Christ and said, uh, don't you care that we're all going to die? And Jesus Christ got up, and he calmed the waves, and he said, where is your faith? The crucial lesson here is if you jump out of the boat, you die immediately. We cannot jump out of the boat at this crucial moment in history. I regret the fact that Bishop Williamson did not sign that document because I think we need a unified church right now to oppose the powers of this world. I agree completely with what he said about the Catholics and the Jews. And when the Catholic Church is disunited, the Jews have inordinate power. That's the world we live in today. The secret is church unity and not jumping out of the boat. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Professor. Uh, I'm not going to argue, but I, I don't agree that the problem is schism. The problem, the basic problem, is truth, and what opposes truth. Uh, and there, there's no bending or compromise possible. So anyway, but I'm not going to go into that. I, I, I have a high regard for you, professor. Um, that's not flattery. Um, I think you've got a mastery of detail and uh, enlightened by the faith, and which is well up, very well up, but follows very well what's going on in the Big Back world. But I don't happen to agree with you about um, what was the right thing to do at that particular moment. I, I don't think the problem was schism. What? Who? Who believes what on each side of the schism? And do they still both believe the Catholic faith? Then there's no basis for the schism, and it will evaporate. If they, if one of them doesn't believe in in the Catholic faith, then the problem is is that lack of faith, and not the fact that they split. The splitting follows on a change of truth. When our Lord spoke to the crowds in the Gospels of John um, and the crowds split, it wasn't our Lord who was to blame. It was those people in the crowd who were refusing the truth. It was the refusal of the truth which which was the problem, not the division. The division was necessary. That's why scripture you see, there must be heresies. There will have to be heresies and there are heresies in each case it's a question that the basic question is not the fact of dividing but what you're dividing about and what beliefs you're dividing about and which beliefs are in line with the Catholic faith, which beliefs are not and in the case of Archbishop Lefebvre he's, he's, tr- he's wholly with Catholic truth and he's not the one that's responsible for those who refuse Catholic the modernists the Archbishop is not responsible for the modernists the modernists will fight tooth and nail to defend their, their poison. So that's where the problem is, not the fact that the, 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 the poisons are separate from the church. Schism is is relative to truth. And the Archbishop had truth. I beg your pardon, I argued after that. But it's a big issue. Um, I ha- have the honour Dear professor never have agreed with on that part. but that doesn't matter I should there should be a schism between us because it, because it's uh, we, we both, I believe we both largely share the Catholic truth therefore
0: thank they, you we, thank you both do you, can, can we take one final question for for the bishop and then uh, wrap up is that okay
2: but okay by me
0: okay This is um, from Emmett. To His Excellency, why are SSPX so supine on political issues? On a board I'm on, there was a post about Attorney General Merrick Garland targeting Catholics. There were no comments, but plenty of comments on fine points of rubrics and discipline. I see this reticence all the time. It It gives credence to the idea that the SSPX was a plot to take Catholics... Out of the fight and out of this world, in a sense, did Archbishop Lefebvre see this happening? Foresee this happening?
2: Uh, it's an interesting question. Of course, it certainly happened. And why did the Catholic, why did the society lose its uh, political application and grip? when the Archbishop was no longer there because he certainly had that political application in grip, He rarely talked about the Jews unless he was provoked. But that's because he thought there are more important things to talk about than about the Jews. I happen to think that the, the Jews, it's very important, the Catholics, they may never open their mouths about it, but they should certainly know the truth about it. Even if they're not able to, to talk about it, as I mentioned, they should know so that at least they themselves will never go along with this silly, soft drift with which so many people today are caught. And again, the question was, why is this this society drifting? Also, Uh, so...
0: They're they're so supine on political issues. Um, Yes. There was a post about Attorney General Merrick Garland targeting Catholics. There's no comments. Plenty of comments in the fine points of rubrics and discipline. I see this residence all the time. Well, it gives the idea that SSPX was a plot to take Catholics out of the fight and out of this world in a sense. Did Archbishop Lefebvre foresee this happening? I think he did. I
2: think he feared what might happen to the society when he was no longer there, and which did happen. Uh, namely, the the the, the the great defendants of the, um, the social kingship of Christ the King. And that's what the Archbishop of Wisconsin is talking about. And that, of course, is politics. And it's also this world, not just the next world. Because rubrics and liturgy are rather more the next world, so to speak, than this world, relatively speaking. But I think he did foresee it. But of course, um, there's a limit to what you can do while you're alive to influence what's going to happen after your death. So um, I, he was powerless, I think he was powerless to stop it. Interestingly, he himself said, and um, he's quoted as saying to more than one person, on more than one occasion, if he had read a particular French anti-liberal book sooner than he did, which when he read it at the end of his days by Emmanuel here I think it was called Catholicism and Liberals, the title some he said, "If he'd read that book sooner, he would have um, made his. He would have designed his society to be more militant, to be more fighting on the ground, so to speak, uh, for the kingship of Christ. the social kingship of Christ. I think he, he, he had a regret that maybe he himself had not uh, oriented the society in a militant, militant enough way." To stand for the doctrine of piousness, reiterated by Pius XII, Pius ten, excuse me, Pius XI, in his famous encyclical on Christ the King.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you both. Um, Liz is thanking you, uh, Bishop, for uh, mentioning Father uh, Fahey. I think she said Fahey. Uh, okay, wait a second. Is, what was the-
2: Father Fahy is the. I heard a question just appeared in print in the black at the bottom. Um, Father Fahy was the is was an outstanding Irish anti-Catholic writer. Uh, what am, Excuse me. What am I saying? Anti-liberal, a famous anti-liberal writer. One of the there aren't many in English. There are many in French, but there are not many in English because English England since Luther has been marinated in liberalism. Um, therefore, you don't get anti writers usually in the English language. But uh, Father Faye is one, thanks to the Irish. Um, but the one in French that she's asking afterwards, a man called Emmanuel Barbier, B-A-R-B-I-E-R. And he was a French priest, about the time of modernism, he denounced modernism, and he went back to the history books to study how modernism had arisen. And I think that's what the book is about. And it's a root and toot and dragged out book. And that's why the Archbishop um, read it at the end of his days and regretted not having been quite so root and toot uh, in, in his leadership, in the way he led, in the way he formed seminarians in his sermons.
0: Fantastic. They are very Fantastic. good priests.
2: They, they are good priests. Many in this society are good priests, but they're not political enough in the right kind of way. They don't. They consider that politics is separated from religion. They they have oh, the theory that, that politics are thoroughly involved in religion, but in practice they follow along with the modern world, in or and along with modern Catholics in thinking that um, they are very spiritual and they need to be very spiritual and everything must be spiritual. Well, yes, but there's also the material which enters very much into our lives and uh, politics are subordinate to religion. And if religion doesn't fulfill its function of looking after the politics and guiding the politics, concerning the politics, then the politicians are liable to follow some other leaders. And they'll often be Jewish leaders. And they will follow them. I would love
0: love to have... I would love to have you both back separately or individually or both before uh, U.S. Thanksgiving this weekend is Canadian Thanksgiving for any Canadians that are with us. Um, The one thing I would, I would love, and this is a probably a 60 minute conversation when you come back Bishop, but you had a quotation in a recent interview where you said that nationalism is a halfway house to globalism. And I think it's along the lines of what you're saying right now. If, the, if there isn't a moral compass, if there isn't an ethic that's guiding you, there's not a big distinction between nationalism and globalism. That's what I was interpreting, but that's probably a 60-minute conversation to to unpack that. But I, I think it's got to be on everyone's mind because everyone sees how lost we've gotten without an ethic, <laughs> how, it, yeah. how, how developed societies... Are headed for a yeah, cliff in so many that respects. Is,
2: that is why Our Lady says, pray for the Pope, for the bishops and priests. That's what she said in Akita, in Japan in 1973. And that's crucial. It, uh, the Catholics have got to pray for their bishops, folks, and priests. And let them pray the rosary. And I would say, if it's at all possible, let them write. I keep saying this, but I absolutely believe it's true. If it's at all possible, pray an average of fifteen mysteries a day. Pray the whole rosary once once a week.
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, there's just a couple of thank yous. Um, Patty is thanking you both for your dedication to faith, truth, and for your personal sacrifices you've made for good. Liz is saying many thanks and God bless. Many rosaries for you both. Um, we have a guest on Tuesday in the Scrum Den, who's an expert in Canada right now on, um, on uh, this, uh, turbo cancers. He's a virologist and an expert on turbo cancers to talk about the genocide underway right now. So please come back and join us for that uh, dialogue. And I would, I would love to have both of you back again before, before Thanksgiving, if at all possible. Thank you. If I
2: have the time free, I'm
1: glad to return. Thank
0: you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for your time and energy. Any closing thoughts, comments, references?
1: Yeah, I'd like to say that uh, when when uh, B- Bishop Williamson met me at the door in Wimbledon, uh, when he told me about that document, he said that uh, Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed that document. And I can't help but think that the position of the Catholic Church would be stronger if uh, Bishop Williamson had signed that document, because I think we would have making a stronger case for unity, a stronger case from within than from without. But, you know, history is what it is. Anyway, I'd just like to thank uh, Bishop Williamson for taking the time and thank you for arranging the interview. Thank you.
0: I feel grateful and honored to have been able to host you both. Thank you. Pleasure. Peace. Happy weekend. Thank you both.